You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. We're honored to be joined today by Ukraine's ambassador to Washington, Oksana Markarova. She'll give us an assessment of this terrible war nearly 700 days into the conflict. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live again. It's good to see you. Thank you, David. I'm honored to be here. It's always uh, a great conversation for me and hopefully will be great conversation for our audience so we can share a little bit about why almost two years into the full-fledged phase of the war, it's still important for all of us to win. So, Ambassador, let's begin with the situation in Congress where the assistance needed to help Ukraine continue in this war is still under debate. Senator Chris Coons, who's been a strong supporter of Ukraine, told NBC this week that if the U.S. Congress doesn't pass aid for Ukraine, they can't hang on for months without it. In other words, in his view, this could be a matter of weeks. So let's begin by talking worst case. If Congress fails to act and approve this aid, how long has Ukraine got uh, that it can continue in this fight? Well, David, that's a very difficult uh, question to answer, but I think it's the right question to ask as we're waiting for this support from the U.S. and from all of our friends and allies right now, because we now have to stay the course. And despite the fact that Ukraine has achieved so much during the past two years, that we have been able to prove Putin and Russia wrong, we have been liberated, uh, we have liberated more than 50% of what they have taken. We are defending Ukraine everywhere on the front line and in, in everywhere in Ukraine. And today is one of these days when, again, a huge barrage of missiles and drones uh, was shelled uh, on peaceful cities, including Kiev. Uh, but, you know, uh, we will stand as long as we will be able to fight. And Ukrainians will fight, uh, you know, regardless of the fact whether we will have weapons or we will not have weapons. Uh, but of course, in order to win, we have, we, we need all the weapons. And uh, every time I'm asked this question, you know, how long can you stand without support? Uh, obviously, it's going to be very difficult. And even though we have started producing our own weapons, we have started co-producing, we still rely heavily on support from our friends and allies, especially from the U.S. And um, I, I do have hope, talking to so many people uh, from both parties, uh, that uh, there will be help. Now, so, the time is of the essence. Ambassador, let's just focus on the situation on Capitol Hill right now. I'm sure you've got uh, the, the best contacts in town and are watching this debate. It's a matter of life and death for your country. What do you, what do you hear? Do you think that it's likely, first, that uh, uh, the, the bipartisan package that would include Ukraine aid and, and uh, border assistance will, will be enacted by the Senate and that it'll have enough support in the House to get through? What do you think? Well, the bipartisan support for Ukraine is there, both on the House and Senate side. And uh, uh, but during the past almost ten uh, to two months, 
the discussion was not about Ukraine. So if when in November, October, I have been answering a lot of questions, providing a lot of information about different uh, parts of Ukrainian support. When President Zelensky was here in December, uh, he also shared with uh, both senators and uh, people on the in, in, in the House uh, what is the plan, what are the priorities for 2024, how well we're doing the accountability, transparency, and reporting on everything we're receiving. Uh, during all January, we hear the mostly debates about something that is not related to Ukraine, but is in the package, uh, which is American internal issue on immigration and, and border control. And again, I cannot comment on it, but I can only hope that the solution there will be found as soon as possible so we can move ahead with the whole package because I know both Ukraine and Israel and other friends are counting on it. Uh, it looks like there is progress in the discussions and we hear it from both sides. But again, you know, uh, in a democracy discussions could be lengthy and progress is great, but we need results. So um, talking to all the friends and allies, again, explaining why it is so critical for Ukraine, but not only for Ukraine. Not, it, it's critical for all of us to stop decisively Putin and show that democracies, even though we need all these discussions, we still can be united and decisive, like Russia, Iran, North Korea, are very united and decided in their malign plans. So we have to, of course, discuss, of course, engage all the stakeholders, of course, explain it to people, of course, address all the concerns that uh, the critics and skeptics have. But we also have to be able to do it fast enough not to lose. And this so is we, what is at stake now. We have a question, uh, Madam Ambassador, from uh, a member of the audience, uh, Maureen in, in Colorado, who asks a very practical political question. What can President Biden do in these remaining days of, of this crucial debate to make the case to, to voters and, and, to, and to members of Congress that this is crucial for the United States interest. What, what, what thoughts do you have about how that basic point that Americans have a lot at stake in this can become clearer? Well, let me, instead of like giving advice to President Biden, because I think he has made this case when he submitted the package and when uh, administration, especially Secretary Austin, Secretary Yellen, Secretary Raimondo, Secretary Blinken, everyone went uh, to Congress and gave their uh, position on why it is important. Uh, but let me also share why I think it's important for all of us. Now, uh, Putin has been very clear what he's fighting against. It's not only Ukraine, which he dreams of destroying and occupying again, but it's against everyone who believes in the same, same values. He threatens other NATO members. He threatens other democratic countries. He says that he's fighting for his way of living, so to say. And it's important for all of us to show that we can support our way of living. Now, 10 to two years uh, into the full-fledged phase of this war, and soon it's going to be 10 years after Putin attacked us for the first time, never Ukraine asked our friends and allies to send soldiers to fight for us. We still can do it ourselves. We can fight an enemy that threatens all of us, threatens Black Sea security, threatens Euro-Atlantic security, threatens all countries of, uh, that value freedom and democracy, we can do it with our own soldiers and our people are ready to do that. 
all we are asking is to send us the tools, help us with support, defense, budget, and others, so we can decisively win and go back to the prosperity and peace, which all of our countries need in order to deliver better to our people. So in a strange way, providing more military support, more support to us now, will result in less support and more money then be available to uh, every country for their own citizens. But in order to prevent American soldiers, European soldiers from fighting Putin, which will happen, unfortunately, if, God forbid, Ukraine falls, we have to support Ukraine and stop it while it's still in Ukraine. I'm reminded of what Winston Churchill told Franklin Roosevelt uh, in 1939, give us the tools and we will finish the job. Uh, so we can finish I, I wanna, the job. I wanna ask you, Ambassador, to help our viewers understand what it feels like to be in Ukraine today. You mentioned that today was an especially difficult day because of a barrage of missiles. I have an app on my phone that lights up every time there's an air alert over Kyiv uh, from my visits there during the war. It lights up two or three times a day. Give, give us a sense of what it's like for people in this cold winter, cold January, uh, and, and wave after wave of, of rockets and drones strikes the capital. What's that like for the, for the people of Ukraine? Well, David, I have the same app and it's very difficult, you know, like today, one of those days when not only uh, dozens of missiles and drones and everything that Russia can gather together was sent to Kyiv, Kharkiv, uh, Kherson, also Pavlograd, they attacked residential areas and they have destroyed just high-rise buildings or the private uh, houses of the people. We have more than 60 people injured. Uh, as the result of this horrible night. We already have seven that confirmed dead. It's horrible, you know, just imagine uh, ordinary people. This is one of the days when, unfortunately, you know, I, I have to call my mom and be worried if she's not responding because, you know, uh, and, and you don't know whether it's, it's because something happened or because she's in the basement. Uh, everyone have to wake up their kids during the night and go to the shelter uh, or, or go, it's, it, it's just unbelievable, you know, a, a bit surreal, I have to uh, I have to share that in, in 21st century, in the middle of Europe, we have attacks after attacks after attacks uh, from absolutely aggressive war criminals in Kremlin who are just sending missiles into residential areas and just killing people for no reason other than some sick person uh, imperialistic fantasies, you know, and uh, of course, because of the air defense, thanks to the US and all of our friends and partners, we are destroying the majority of these missiles, but not all of them. And frankly, this is why support is so important now, because we will be running out of the interceptors of the missiles that we need to protect life, not to mention all the weapons that we need in order to liberate still our territories, because while people are suffering in Kyiv, in Lviv, in other places from these rocket attacks on a regular basis, there are also millions of Ukrainians who suffer under occupation. And that, we don't see it on TV, we don't hear sometimes about it, but it's millions of people who are being killed, raped, tortured, 
literally as we speak. So it's a genocide which has been committed for two years now, uh, and we have to stop it. And we have to stop it for the sake of Ukrainians, of course. We have to save our lives together because this is who we are as humans. But we also have to stop it to prevent other genocides like this, because it's not just Putin. Other dictators are watching. Other terroristic regimes are watching. And as I said, it's the North Korean missiles that are flowing into Ukraine right now. It's Iranian drones that are used against our civilians. So thank you for making that personal. Um, imagine, uh, members of our audience, what it would be like to have to call your, your mom and make sure she's alive uh, in the, today in the middle, as you say, in the middle of Europe. So, Ambassador, I want to ask you about ways to deal with the terrible attacks that Ukraine is, is facing. And I want to start with uh, something that's not military but financial. $300 billion in, in Russian central bank assets have been frozen. And there's an argument that that money, which is Russia's, should be taken and given to Ukraine to finance the rebuilding of Ukrainian territory that's been destroyed. To make the argument for doing that, and then please, in, in doing so, respond to the worries that people have that that would ha have a very destructive uh, effect on the uh, integrity, reliability of, of central banks and the international financial system. So tell us, tell us why to do it and why concerns about it are misplaced. Thank you, David. It's a very important question, which Ukraine started raising from the day one of this horrible invasion. Uh, first, because Russia invaded us in 2014, and we and they have destroyed so much already in 2014, 2015. Uh, second, when they restarted this full-fledged war, uh, during the first uh, full year of uh, war, the total destruction, as assessed by the World Bank, was equal to 411 billion U.S. dollars, and it's just scratch of the surface. It's just the physical destruction of the buildings. So, um, of course, we need to repair everything now, and of course, we need to reconstruct in the future. And it's just fair that aggressor has to pay for it. So, it's Russian money that belongs to the Russian state. It's the sovereign money of the country. They have been frozen in a number of jurisdictions, and we're working very hard, and Ukraine is advocating uh, for this money not only to be frozen, but to be confiscated and provided to, to Ukraine. Now, a number of countries, including U.S., already are doing that with a private money. So as you know, the changes into the legislation have been made in the U.S., and since the beginning of 2023, DOJ is doing an excellent job going after the sanctioned individuals, their frozen assets, and through the court decisions here, confiscating them, and through the Department of State, providing it to Ukraine. And the first amount, maybe not huge, but it's very important that it already happened, that belonged to Russian oligarch Malafeev, already was confiscated and provided to the veterans' uh, projects in Ukraine. Now, the same should and could be done with the sovereign funds. And uh, as the former Minister of Finance, of course, we all used to say that the sovereign assets have the immunity and there is no way you can touch it. On the other hand, this is such an extraordinary circumstances where an aggressor uh, 
deliberately attacked a sovereign country. Russia is destroying uh, the, the everything in Ukraine, not to mention killing the people. Uh, there is solid proof of not only their actions, but also the results of their action, destruction, the dam destruction, the flooding, everything that they have done in Ukraine. It's not only the war crimes, it's also something they have to compensate for. Now, you can wait until the end of the war and the end and and going through the court system, or we can go ahead and and uh, work on confiscating these funds now. And I'm sure it will not have any effect on uh, the the broader uh, system, and it will not scare the normal countries, and it will not um, seed their. Uh, distrust in, in any jurisdictions that are holding this money, unless, of course, these are people who intend to attack their neighbors unjustifiably and, and with, without any provocation. So uh, this war has already, and Russians' actions, has have already uh, shattered the global system as which was built after the World War II. And uh, we have to also be, I wouldn't say flexible, but very proactive in addressing these new challenges. And this is one of the areas where I think we have to move decisively. And Ukraine's position has been uh, on this Russian assets from the day one. And we're very glad that this year we see not only the willingness, but very active discussions among G7 ministers uh, on not whether to do it, but how to do it in the proper and legally sound way. So um, sure. it's, it's very important to do so. And I just want to also say that it's not actually a plan B, you know, like I, I saw some discussions where people are saying, you know, instead of the support to Ukraine, these assets could be used. It's, it's, a, it's a part of the plan A. We do need all the support that our friends can provide to us now in order to be able to sustain the effort. But we need to actively work on this confiscation so that we will have this money to compensate to people, to, to rebuild. Uh, and it will take some time. But in order to make it faster, we have to work on it already now. Thank you, Ambassador, for, for making the case. Some prominent uh, economists, including former Treasury Treasury Secretary Larry Summers have argued that this step is appropriate and and urgently necessary. So, Ambassador, I want to ask you about the, the military situation. We've seen uh, Ukraine, even with all its difficulties, trying to take this war home to Russia, to make an impact on, on, on Russia and Russian-occupied territory in new ways. Over the weekend, there was heavy shelling of the Russian-occupied city of Donetsk uh, in the east of your country. At least uh, 25 people were killed, reportedly, in, in that shelling. Russia uh, issued a statement calling this a brutal terrorist attack. Given Russian attacks on your own cities and civilians, um, th that didn't ring true uh, to me, but I want to ask you for your response. And should we expect more attacks like the Donetsk attack in, in coming weeks and months? Well, on Donetsk, that question should be asked from Russians because that was a Russian provocation. Yes, Ukraine has the right to defend itself by striking into military targets, and that's what we are doing, and we will do, of course, more of it. Uh, in uh, including 
uh, where the Russia is uh, using, you know, this uh, uh, ammo dumps and everything else. But as our military swiftly said after Russian provocation in Donetsk that we didn't shell and, and, and those people were killed by the Russian shelling. And they specifically created the provocation before the uh, Rammstein meeting today, before the UN meeting. Uh, and this is frankly coming from their playbook, how to uh, kill innocent civilians and attack innocent civilians uh, rather than even when they're fighting a very unfair, unjustified, unprovoked war. But even war, they cannot fight within the, the rules of the engagement of the war. They simply fight with the civilians. So, uh, you know, this is one of the war crimes which uh, Ukraine will be investigating as well. It's done on our territory by the Russian forces. And, uh, you know, Ukraine is developing drones. And this is the, one of the area where we have been successful. And the range of these drones is getting bigger and bigger so that we can have a reach and again, destroy this uh, ammunition depots and uh, military targets everywhere on our territory and beyond. But Ukraine has never targeted civilian population. And even when we are liberating our cities, you can see it during these two years, when we liberated Kherson, when we liberated other uh, towns and cities, our armed forces are making it in a very responsible way, even though it actually more difficult for them and cause them uh, sometimes more of their military personal lives, but trying to liberate cities so that we can protect um, our civilian population that is there. So this is that, the situation with that. Thank you for, for clarifying that. There was another uh, striking development over the last week, and, and that was two attacks on uh, Russian uh, energy uh, loading facilities near St. Petersburg, far from Ukraine, strategically very important. Um, the Kiev Post quoted unnamed uh, Ukrainian security service uh, sources as talking about how this move hampers the occupier's ability to sustain their forces by striking at, at energy, the source of, of Russian revenue. Could you comment on, uh, on on that attack, if you can, but more generally on Ukraine's readiness to strike targets in Russia uh, to make this war uh, more costly to, to Putin? David, I can only comment on what is confirmed by the Ukrainian military, of course, but more broadly, again, just to say the UN Charter allows us to defend ourselves by including strikes into uh, Russia's territory on the military targets which are used against us. So uh, as uh, more capabilities are developed by Ukrainians, we do have now uh, drones that uh, can reach hundreds of kilometers. Um, you know, we will do everything possible in order to defend ourselves. Now, it's very easy for Russia to stop all of it because this is their war of choice. Uh, they can end it very quickly. They can just decide to stop the aggression, withdraw from our territory, and that will be the end of the war. Uh, but until then, when they are targeting us, when they are killing us, when they are uh, messing all the troops and, and, and uh, fighting and trying to occupy more and, and killing our people and torturing our people and stealing our children and doing all the war crimes against us, we are left with no choice but to defend ourselves. But even doing so, 
again, we're doing everything according with all the international rules, contrary to what Russians are doing. So, uh, Ambassador, in the in the few minutes that we have left, I want to ask you to step back and look at the state of this war as we near the two-year anniversary. Your commanding general, uh, Zhaluzhny, uh, said in a remarkable interview with The Economist in October that uh, this war has, in his words, uh, reached uh, a, a level of stalemate, and he warned that it could drag on for years and wear down the Ukrainian state. So I, I want to ask you, as Ukraine's ambassador to, to Washington, is that accurate? Is is this war now in a stalemate? And is there a danger of a war of attrition that will just become bloodier and bloodier? I think, you know, both, all of us, from President Zelensky to our Chairman Zeluzhny, to every soldier on the front line and every Ukrainian everywhere, we know that, first of all, we witness this war on a daily basis. And this is a very hot war. Whether you look at the uh, front line, which is a very long, active front line, even during the winter, or everywhere in Ukraine, like today, where the missiles are flying into your city and destroying lives and, and disrupting lives for so many people. Now, in order to not to allow it to be a stalemate, in order not to get into the situation, which unfortunately Ukraine was forced to get into in, in 2015, the recipe is very simple on the one hand. It's weapons and support to Ukraine, more of it, and sanctions and isolation to Russia. And if we move, not only stay the course, but move actively, double down in both of these directions, we can liberate our country. We have shown how we liberated 50% in 2022. We have shown how we liberated literally the Black Sea in 2023 and created a grain corridor of our own without even uh, negotiating through the UN with Russia. We are seeing how we are ramping up our production. We have started co-production with the US, with Great Britain and others. We just have to do a little bit more and stay the course and not to allow Putin to, for all of us to get tired or get uh, dissuaded or think that uh, uh, you know it's, it's too hard. And actually, it's a very winnable war, and it's winnable soon. You know, we have a saying, and you probably have the same, that the, it's the darkest right before the uh, the dawn. Uh, so it's difficult. It's cold. People are losing a lot. But every time I call home to ask how are they, they're usually asking whether I'm okay. They're very upbeat, and they all say, don't worry. We can we can handle it. We'll stay the course. We have to win. Just make sure we have more weapons and support. So that's that's a, a tough uh, and inspiring ambassador. I, I, I take it from what you said that the talk that you hear in Washington, even from people who are friends, great friends of Ukraine, that maybe Ukraine should think about a kind of South Korea solution where it has strong defensible uh, lines and the can protect the territory it holds, and that territory can become part of Europe and NATO. I take it that, that you're not ready for that kind of solution. You would argue that, we're, that it's not a, don't think about South Korea, think about liberating all of it. I don't think I will tell you a secret, but most importantly, the aggressor is not ready for that kind of solution. There is no such option on the table, even to start with. 
the intent of Putin and Russia did not change. They want to occupy all Ukraine or destroy all Ukraine. And uh, until we deny them this possibility, they will not be able to even discuss anything. The only plausible peace plan is President Zelensky's peace formula. And it's based on the UN decisions that already have been supported in some instances by more than 154 countries. So if we want to get to peace, to just and lasting peace, we just have to double down on the battlefield and sanctions. And hopefully that, together with active work on the peace formula, which, as you know, in Davos was attended by more than 80 countries now, will all converge in one place where we could pair the battle uh, wins with sanctions that will finally stop the production in Russia, stop their income that they're turning into the missiles with the diplomatic efforts and solutions, and we can get to peace. And nobody wants peace more than Ukrainians. But it has to so be I, just and last in peace. Ambassador, I have a last question before, before we leave, uh, and it's one that's a, just a special outrage in this war. Uh, numbers that, that I've seen s suggest that 20,000 Ukrainian children have been separated from their families and taken to Russia, and that of those 20,000, only 380 or so have been reunited with their families. Uh, I think every parent can imagine what a nightmare that is. What is Ukraine doing to try to get these children back and together with their families again? We're doing everything we can and we're asking everyone to help us. The situation is even worse than that. 20,000 is the registered cases. It's the children we have identified and we know that Russians have stolen them and trying to put for uh, speedy adoptions, uh, relocating them to far uh, parts of Russia, changing their last names so that they will never be able to return even. But unless we liberate all Ukraine, we will not even know how many, it could be hundreds of thousands, uh, because we don't know the fate of so many, unfortunately, of our Ukrainians, whether they are on the occupied territories, they are killed, they are abducted into Russia. And the, of course, the largest problem is, the biggest problem is with children. It's even difficult to, to understand how human beings, even as evil as Russians, can do something like this. How can you take orphans or children or separate children from their parents and then just simply uh, put them into, uh, you know, in, in other families or put them into what they call the re-education camps. Uh, this is horrible. That's why the first crime for which Putin already is indicted and there is arrest warrant for him and for his so-called ombudsman is exactly this, the kidnapping of Ukrainian children. Uh, so we have the initiative which is called Bring uh, Kids Back UA. We are uh, gathering all the people, and I'm so glad U.S. is an active participant of that. This is the area where, again, we have to proactively develop policies because uh, something like this have not done uh, by, by evil people since uh, literally Nazi were doing this during the World War II. So we have to locate them, we have to identify them, we have to get the, all of them back. And of course, the chances of doing so are going to be much higher when we win. That's why, you know, the fate of our children is so much related with our ability to defend ourselves and win in this war. Our children, also civilians, 
and our prisoners of war, which still are held in Russia in horrible conditions, contrary to how we are treating their prisoners. Uh, Ambassador, thank you for a moving conversation about this terrible war as it approaches year two. Um, we want you to come back, hopefully, to talk about uh, better news from Ukraine. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, and good day to everyone. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.